Truth Barista is a production of High Beam Ministry and uses the imaginary Airzatz coffee shop as its platform to bring you a conversation about a plethora of scintillating topics. We don't shy away from any issue that is plaguing our culture or the church today, whether it's current cultural issues, questions about Bible verses, or even just some banter to encourage you. Dr. Jay Christensen is the Truth Barista, and he and amazing Larry Kutzler brew up highly caffeinated conversations for our day. Grab a cup of joe, pop yourself down in the booth next to us, and get ready to think. The Truth Barista is a production of High Beam Ministry, and it's listener-supported. For more information about The Truth Barista, go to highbeamministry.com. Thanks for listening. I believe these seven were literal to the seven churches, but also letters to all the churches of all time. In other words, whether you lived in the 7th century or the, the 12th century or the 21st century, these letters are for us. Here are two reasons why I believe that. Because it's in the Bible. God put it in the Bible. So just like the letter of Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus, yet God has spoken to you through Ephesians, I think he can speak to you through these seven letters, which encompass one letter. So it's by the Spirit. The second reason I believe it's for all churches of all time is all of them end with, either at the last line or close to the last of the letter, they end, they'll say this, all of them say this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural. Anyone who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. Now remember, Jesus said these, yet the Spirit inspired the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit. So let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the Scripture. This is The Truth Barista, helping you think differently about your world. Thanks for joining us. Dr. Jay Christensen, here we are once again. We're into the book of Revelation, the first two chapters, and we're talking about the churches that Jesus was talking about in these passages. And I find it fascinating, the things he said to them. You know, he gave them accommodation, then he gave them a warning, because there were things they were doing that weren't quite right. And these, these churches, by the way, did we mention they're all in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey? It's all in this little geographical area. It's too bad we don't have a map we could throw out there and show everybody, but they're fairly in proximity of one another, right? Right. Yeah, they're all clustered in what we would call Turkey today. And that makes sense because these are the main bodies, main regional churches that covered much of that, if you want to call it the eastern side of the Roman Empire. And so now Jesus shows up and he speaks to these churches. And what we've found out over the last couple of weeks study here at the Imaginary Erzatz Coffee Shop, sitting in our anointed booth discussing these wonderful things, is that Ephesus was the love gone cold church. They're still functioning, but they've lost that passion, that first love. And he gives them a great commendation, and yet he gives them a pretty stiff rebuke, and then he gives them correctives. And that's his pattern through this whole thing, except for a couple of churches in here. The second church we looked at was the church at Smyrna, and that's the persecuted church. And basically, he was giving them a commendation for the way they've held up under persecution. Then you go to Pergamum. That's the compromising church. Then we talked about Thyatira, which is the corrupt church, which is where you start heading once you start compromising. And then you hit Sardis, which is the dead church. So you kind of see a slide through those three churches. And then all of a sudden, 
on the second to last church, you have a breath of fresh air. That's Philadelphia. And no, that's not in Pennsylvania. It's the church. <laughs> Philadelphia, this is the faithful church, the church of brotherly love. Shall we dive into this? Yeah, we should. And we might say that this is kind of probably one of the smaller churches. I don't know if that to be true or not, but when I read it, it says that it doesn't have a lot of power. So I'm just thinking that maybe it was a smaller church, didn't have as much credibility in the community. I don't know, but it, they got a good recommendation, that's for sure. Exactly. And and I don't care what the world says. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And right. boy, this letter to Philadelphia is one of those well done, good and faithful servant statements from Jesus. So let's read it. And we'll find this in Revelation 3. We're doing two and three. So we'll find this in Revelation 3, starting at verse 7. And Jesus says, write to the angel, which again we talked about is the messenger or likely the leader of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I've placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, this section is just packed with stuff, and we could do a three-hour teaching on some of the background material here, but we just want to hit the high points and see what we can learn from this as Christians. So what's some of the stuff you pick up of this section that you were talking about in your blog or any thoughts? That well, I just thought because it says here, you have little power, but you've been faithful. And I think that's very interesting because sometimes we think it's only the size of the church or the reputation of the church that gets all the accolades with God. But that's not true. Just because they're large does not necessarily make them right with God. I mean, here we have, it's seemingly a smaller church, little power, and yet they've been faithful, and that's one of the reasons Jesus said, you're doing, you're doing a good job. Exactly. And as you and I have both experienced in life, we've known of large churches that have been faithful and large churches that have been unfaithful. In fact, there are denominations made up of many churches that have gone the unfaithful route. And yet you have small churches or even home groups that Okay, so they're not storming the castle, boys, you know, with, with evangelistic efforts, and they're not supporting multiple missionaries or social works such as feeding the poor. And yet Jesus would look at them and said, yes, but you as individuals have been faithful to me. Well done, good and faithful servant. And so again, it's it has nothing to do with size or activity or anything. It's faithfulness. Now, if at being a part of faithfulness you grow, fantastic. If, meaning much activity, demonstrates your faithfulness, that's good too. So we can't discount that. So the main focal point we have to remember is, are you as an individual being faithful to God in what you say and do? 
Or are you kind of hedging things a little bit? And then you start sliding back into those other three churches, the compromise and then the corruption and then death. So we don't want that. We want to be the Church of Philadelphia. Well, he has an interesting insert here, which I wasn't quite sure of, so I want to get your take on it. He, he talks about that there were these Jews of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and they are not. Okay. What does that all mean? They were Jews. They were all Jews for the most part, right? Well, yeah. Now, it, this has been a very problematic verse, depending on your background as a Christian. And let's face it, after 2,000 years, Christianity is looked at as a Gentile faith that is an offshoot and okay, it's an offshoot of Judaism. We have that. From the Christian point of view, we look at this and and historically, and in that viewpoint, we look at Jesus putting aside Judaism to embrace the whole world, Jew and Gentile. But the problem with that is he didn't. I mean, like you said, the early church was Jewish in its nature. And the big problem they had in the early church where there were some Jews who were believers, but they insisted that you had to be circumcised if you were a Gentile coming into this messianic stream of Judaism. You had to go through baptism, which Jesus affirmed. He said, you need to believe and be baptized, so that's good. But then they said, once you've entered into this messianic stream of Judaism, you were required to keep the whole law, whereas the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 said to the Gentiles, we're only going to ask four things from you as baseline, and then you'll pick it up as you go along, because where are you going to go to church? There were no churches. There were only synagogues. So they would go to synagogue and they'd learn the Torah, but now they would be learning it as people who believe Jesus is the Messiah. That's the only difference. So when I look at this from a Christian Gentile replacement theology aspect, it's terrible. Verse 9, note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. So immediately people are thinking, synagogue of Satan, these are Jews attacking Gentile Christians. No, you have to look at it. From the synagogue of Satan who claim, there it is, who claim to be Jews, but they're not. They are lying. So what John is saying, well, actually what Jesus is saying through John is there are these people who are claiming to be a part of the body who are Messianic Jews, but they're not. They're lying. They're false believers, if you want to put it that way. And because Satan is the one who opposes God, that's what his name means. Hasatan means the one who opposes, the adversary. So if Jesus is speaking to the church of Philadelphia, he's talking to those who are opposing the church at Philadelphia. Some of them claim to be Messianic Jews and believers, but they're not. They're lying, and they're opposing that church. There are those who claim to be a part of the body who are perhaps even Gentiles who have converted into this Messianic stream, claiming to be Jews, but they're not. So let's not paint this whole thing as a Gentile Christianity versus Jewish polemic. Okay, This is not an attack on the Jews. This is an attack on a limited group of people who are picking on the church at Philadelphia. Well, it would be the same thing, Dr. J, if in the church today people say, well, I'm a Christian, but they're not born again. You can call yourself anything, right? I'm a Christian, yeah. but if I'm not living and accepting Jesus as Savior and being born again, then I don't think you're a Christian. So it kind of is like that, right? 
Well, it does meet the qualification. And this is what you and I often joke about, you know, the crinos, the Christians in name only. And you can, yeah, you can call yourself anything you want. But in a sense, think of this. This goes back to the Ten Commandments. You are taking God's name vainly. In other words, you're taking the name of Jesus upon yourself, but you're not following his ways. You're not living the way he wants you to. You're not in an active relationship with him. You are taking the name vainly uselessly. You are a crino. And so in a sense, that's what I see when I'm looking at this. Jesus is calling them out for as posers. Let's just put it that way. And then he's quite vivid here, that word synagogue of Satan. Now that's kind of a an interesting and sadly an unfortunate translation because the word is synagogue, which has to do with it's an assembly of Satan. It can represent a formal synagogue or it could be, oh yeah, they're just all followers of Satan. Why? Because there is a group, an assembly of people who are opposing you. Mm. So that's a way to look at this particular section here. Well, there is a section that follows it that's also troubling because a lot of Christians say, well, if you're faithful to God, he's going to keep you away from any kind of trials and tribulations. I'm not sure that's the correct interpretation of what he says next. And you read it earlier, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth. How do you interpret that one? Okay, that is a classic case of biblical interpretation, taking something that was specifically addressed to a specific group of people and then wanting to apply it in a general sense across all of Christianity. There is no doubt, though, in my mind that when Jesus wants to protect you from the you know, a test or a trial in your life, he certainly can do that. I've been through, I can't tell you how many bullets I've dodged, so to speak, throughout life where I'm about to make a decision or I'm about to do something or somebody comes to attack me and I get this sense of peace and it's just like it goes, the trouble just goes around me. And it's like, thank you, Jesus. That's great. You've kept me from this hour of testing and the hour of trial. That's fantastic. But he's speaking specifically to the Philadelphia church here, the Messianic Jewish and Gentile believers. And he says, I know your works. I'm going to protect you because of your faithfulness. And there is a testing that's going to come upon the whole earth. By the way, and here's another biblical interpretation. This shows you that the early church believed that the tribulation in Jesus' return was going to happen in that generation. But it didn't. And so what happened? The church, the, those who followed Jesus, had to adjust their end times theology and just kind of be patient. So it's like, let's take our eyes off of the, the rapture. Let's take our eyes off Jesus' return as our primary focus. Now let's put it on how do we live for Jesus now, secondarily with an eye to what is to come. Because he did promise it. Doesn't mean he's not coming back. It's not going to be a tribulation. We have to keep our eyes on the now with an eye to the future as a secondary thing. One of the words that the scripture uses for his return is the blessed hope. I was surprised not too long ago, I asked a group of people, older Christians, you know, middle-aged Christians, what was the blessed hope? You know something? They couldn't answer it. Oh, because they didn't know the phrase, they well, didn't know the verse. You know, usually, I mean, I grew up knowing that the blessed hope was his return, right? And right. I always assumed everyone knew that, but I don't think that's true. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, having been involved in a Pentecostal denomination, th yeah, that's a well-known phrase because it's a major part of their doctrine. But you go to other denominations, that 
particular phrase, the blessed hope, isn't well known, even though if you say blessed hope, those who are familiar with the scriptures go, oh, I know what that is. That's Jesus' return. So it depends on how worked into that particular denomination or church's culture that phrase is. So let's look at this whole thing, and let me kind of distill it down in the remaining time that we have here. So this is the positive that Jesus says to the, the faithful church at Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. It comes from the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David. Now, that's really an important phrase, the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. You have little strength, but in a sense, what Jesus is saying is, but I'm holding the door open for you. You can't hold the door open, but I can. I give you an, I'm the one who sustains you, who keeps you. And by the way, this phrase also goes back to an Old Testament, an Old Covenant scripture. It goes back to Isaiah chapter 22. Now, here is a prophecy that Isaiah has against Shebna. Shebna is a steward who is in charge of the Israel's palace, of Judah's palace. And he it's a rebuke. He says to Shebna, what are you doing here? Who authored you to carve out a tomb for yourself here, carving your tomb on the heights and cutting a resting place for yourself out of rock? The rebuke is that Shebna, the steward in charge of the palace, sees the Babylonians approaching and he abandons his post. I might as well carve out my tomb and spend time preparing for my death rather than doing what God wants him to do. He's being faithless. So he says in verse 17, Isaiah chapter 22, look, you strong man, the Lord is about to shake you violently. He will take a hold of you, wind you up in a ball and sling you into a wide land. There you will die and there your glorious chariots will be a disgrace to the house of your Lord. I will remove you from your office. You will be ousted from your position. Now, do you catch that? He's basically saying, because you're unfaithful, I will remove you. Now, it's no mistake that Jesus says this to the church at Philadelphia, because the Philadelphia Jews would know this scripture. Now, going on in Isaiah 22, Verse 20, on that day, I will call for my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and tie your sash around him, and I will hand your authority over to him, and he will be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. He's saying, I'm going to replace you, Shebna, with somebody who's going to be faithful. Now, here's the key scripture, Isaiah 22, 22, and I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. So he's basically saying, this person, Eliakim, is going to be the one who carries the Lord's authority over the palace and over the people, and he will have the ability to watch over and guard and steward the people that Shebna is is abandoning. Verse 23, I will drive him like a peg into a firm place, and he will be a throne of honor for his father's family. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's family, the descendants and the offshoots, all the small vessels and the bowls to every kind of jar. Okay, so now let's go back to Revelation 3 and look at that, what he says. He says, the one, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one can close, who closes and no one opens. Jesus has his Father's authority. He is faithful, and he holds the door open, and everything in the Church of Philadelphia hangs on him not on themselves. And so he's saying, because you're faithful and are depending on me, I will make sure that you will prevail. 
you are the faithful ones who will remain. You will not be like the Shebnas who will be cast out into exile. Do you see the connection oh, here between I, the two? I, I've never drew that connection before. So I really, I'm going to have to go back and study it. But it's really, it really opens your eyes to how the scripture is really tightly knit together. It, it doesn't oppose itself. It, it no. really complements itself. And this is why I encourage people, you have to read the rest of the Bible because so much of what we read in the book of Revelation is, it actually comes from other parts of the Bible. They're quotations. And when you hit a quotation in the book of Revelation, you have to go back to its location. Yeah, you like that? Oh, I do like that. So, and then when you go back to the location, you see the context and you go, oh, now I know what he's referring to in Revelation. I just have one question because this whole section to the Church of Philadelphia is being based on faithfulness. So right. what makes us unfaithful? Well, I like what he says in verse 8, I know your works. And then you go down to verse 10, because you have kept my commandment to endure. Faithfulness is steadfastness. It's continuing in what you've been assigned. Think of it in this terms, as a soldier continues his work with his commander's orders, even though the commander is not present, that is a faithful soldier. This is who the church at Philadelphia are. This is the congregation. They're at work, they're faithful to Jesus, and they're carrying out his commission, even though they have little strength. They don't need a lot of their own strength. Why? Because Jesus is their strength. He has the key of David. A key has to do with authority. Okay, when Jesus says to Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom, what that meant in rabbinic terms of the day is that I give you the authority to make decisions in the gray areas of my commands in order to apply it to the community. So when Jesus says he has the key of David, he says, I have the authority that David has over the house of Israel. The Gentiles have been brought into and bonded with the commonwealth of Israel. And according to New Testament scriptures, the church, Jews and Gentiles, are in a sense the new house of David. Now, I'm not talking literal genealogy. I'm talking the spiritual Israel, God's people. And Jesus has the key of David, the authority over God's household, and he, by his authority and power, will preserve his faithful people to the end, even through trials and tribulations. So it all comes back to Jesus, period. <laughs> exactly. And the it's Jesus only. <laughs> you know, Jesus only. The reason I was asking that question was, I have made a career asking one question, and I ask it all the time, what is missing? And, and in this case, the question perhaps would be, am I faithful? Now, what a great question to ask yourself as an individual. What a great question to ask if you're a leader of the church. Are we as a church faithful? Because that's what the, this is getting at. Are we doing what Jesus has asked us to do, or are we off on our own? I think that's an important question to ask, don't you? It is, absolutely. It is a crucial question. On a macro level, we're talking denominations, churches, congregations. On a micro level, that's a question we as individuals need to ask ourselves every day. When we're tempted to sin, and we all do, one of the first questions comes to mind is, is this a faithful thing? Is this a work of faithfulness that I'm about to participate in? How faithful am I being? I, I got to tell you this. This is, this is interesting. I didn't want to go to Bible study the other day, the men's Bible study. And 
I just, it was like, oh, you got to go. I got to go. I got to go. So it's an early morning thing. So, you know, I don't like crawling out of bed early in the morning. So I went, but I got in late because I was kind of goofing around and dragging my heels and the whole thing. And I go in and I sit down next to this guy in the Bible study. Don't think anything of it. I usually sit on the other side of the room, but because I'm late, I came and sat down next to him. He asked me to talk to him, and I found out he had an issue he needed pastoral counseling on. And so we prayed for wisdom, and God showed up, did a remarkable thing, ministered to him. We're both crying. It was a wonderful time. And then he says, you know what? He says, I got up this morning, and I had this sense I needed to talk with you today. And so I prayed and asked God, could Jay please be at the Bible study today so that I can talk to him? And you came and sat down next to me, something I would have not done because I would have been on the other side of the room. I didn't want to be faithful that day. But because I was faithful, I was able to minister to a great need in this man's life that I'm sure is going to affect his life, his wife's life, his extended family's life. It was amazing. The benefits of faithfulness is so strong. And I felt so weak that morning to wanting to come in, you know, to get my carcass out of bed and get to a Bible study. And this is what I like from Jesus in this verse. He says, keep the faith, baby. It's not up to the believer, but the one in whom they believe. And so his reward for them is persevere. I will help the little ones persevere who have little strength from the test and I'll protect them in the midst of of the test. And the reward is related to that. If you stay faithful to me, I will be faithful to keep you close to me. You will have a place in my father's presence with my name on you, which means God's ownership. And you will live with me. In other words, those who are faithful, he'll give you the stamp of approval and you will be in God's presence as his faithful one for eternity. And I like what Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Hey, Truth Barista Show listeners, this is Dr. Jay Christensen, and I want to challenge you to take a deep dive into your Bibles this year. How? By reading through your Bible in 2023, and I want to help you. Cruising Through the Bible is High Beam Ministries' year-round Bible reading schedule and commentary. All you have to do is follow the schedule in the book and read a few chapters of the Bible every day. Then check out my thoughts on the day's reading. I get it. The Bible is often hard to understand because it's written for ancient and first century people, and we're only about 2,000 years removed from them. That's why I wrote Cruising Through the Bible, to help you understand what you're reading and to connect what you've read with the rest of the Bible and make God's Word a part of your life. So take the challenge. You'll find Cruising Through the Bible on Amazon.com. Go to Amazon.com, search Cruising Through the Bible, and you'll find it in monthly installments for print or Kindle. No huge commitment, although as a follower of Jesus, you really should know his whole word. Am I right? Yes, I'm right. But Dr. J, what if I miss the beginning? What if I miss a day? Well, that's the beauty of it. You can jump in anytime you want. Remember, God's word is alive, and no matter what you read, even the tough or the weird to you part, God will still speak to you and into your life. So take the read through the Bible in a year challenge, and let me help you. Go to Amazon.com, type in Cruisin' Through the Bible, and get started now. Oh, and coffee. Don't forget coffee. Coffee helps a lot. Okay, fine. Tea's good, too. So just start cruising through the Bible today. Get High Beam Ministries Cruising Through the Bible on Amazon.com.
the truth today? Dr. Jay Christensen is the truth barista and the founder of Hyde Beam Ministry. Jay is a creative person who wants to use the setting of an imaginary cafe to produce a series of radio and internet programs that confront the issues of our day through the lens of the Bible. The Truth Barista was the avenue that was developed to communicate truth using the Bible as the source of our information. The Truth Barista is a production of High Beam Ministry and can be found online at highbeamministry.com.